Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Dr. Andy Wilczek, and this is episode 50 of the podcast. So this is our third week in a row of having these panels talking about teaching and scholarship in the pandemic and how everything that's been going on has affected us. This is also our biggest panel of the series. So this week, we have Drs. Shelley Clevenger, Katie Durante, Marilyn Grell brisk Revika Steinberg, Jordan Laney, and Brianna Beaupre. Um, so it's a big group. It's a good conversation. Um... You're going to like it. This is episode 50, 50 of Untenured Tracks. Uh, This is the third uh, Untenured Tracks spinoff kind of panel i don't really have a name name for this version of the project yet i want to go with like radio free something but i don't know what the something should be um but to branch out um to include panels of people um people who have tenure um because i think uh, as i've said in previous podcasts that we're really at a tipping point where we need to amplify as many voices as we can um kind of regardless of of tenure status um so uh, this is the third panel talking about how our our scholarship and our teaching and really our careers have been affected um, by the last five months of the pandemic. We're recording this on August 26th. Um, the beginning of the semester, I'm on my third day of the semester and it already feels like three months. Um, so I'm really looking forward to <laughs> how it's going to feel uh, in, in October and November. Um, I'm going to go around the, the screen and um, have people introduce themselves. Um, we'll go clockwise, um, starting with um, uh, Katie Durante. Could you introduce yourself, please? Hey, everyone. I'm Katie Durante. I am an assistant professor at Nevada State College in Henderson, Nevada. I'm a sociologist, and I teach in the interdisciplinary social sciences department, where I mostly teach in the criminal justice major and the social justice minor. Super cool. I would. I really want to develop a social justice minor and look more into that. So, I might have to pick your brain afterwards. Um, Jordan. Hi, I'm Jordan Laney, and I I'm teaching at Virginia Tech and Appalachian State University. I teach um, specifically right now. I'm teaching in Appalachian Studies programs and also um, an Appalachian Music Traditions course for the music department. And my research is in cultural and social theory with a focus on um, place-based relationships. Very cool. Uh, returning to the, to the show, although chronologically this will be the first time that everybody gets to meet her, uh, Marilyn, how are you doing today? And you're muted. <laughs> I'm okay. <laughs> uh, my name is Marilyn, and Marilyn Grellbrist. I just finished a year as a visiting assistant professor at Pomona College, a private liberal arts college in California. And um, I also guest lectured, um, co-taught a class at UCR. Um, I mostly do uh, sort of global political sociology um, and historically based um, sociology. 
very cool. Uh, also returning, uh, my my good friend Bree Beaupre. How are you doing, Bree? Doing well. Thanks for having me. Um, so I am assistant professor at Wichita State University in Kansas, and I teach corrections, research methods, and women in crime. Very excited to have you back. Uh, next, um, Rebecca. I hope I pronounced it right. Uh, hi, I'm Rebecca Steinberg. It's a complicated name right now, so I don't stay away from the Steinberg. Um, <laughs> I'm an assistant professor of criminal justice at Cal State San Bernardino. I just finished my first year, so that was a really interesting first year between fires, power outages, and, well, the pandemic. Um, and I mostly research issues related to access to justice, legal reforms, things like plea bargaining, um, bail reform, juvenile justice issues, um, and program evaluations. And so I teach classes within that kind of Very cool. Um, and then last but certainly not least, um, is Shelly Clevenger. How are you, Shelly? Good. Uh, I'm super excited to be here. Um, so I am department chair and associate professor for victim studies at Sam Houston State University. So brand new department. This is our first semester. Uh, and I teach uh, victimology, cyber victimization, violence against women. Um, and that's also my research area. So welcome again, everybody. Thank you for uh, taking the time during a super stressful uh, semester with multiple natural disasters happening um, to come and hang out with me for a little while just to talk about how we're doing um, with everything. So I guess that's what I'll, I'll start with. Um, how, uh, how's everybody doing today? How are we, how is our, our semester starting off or our last uh, gasp of summer before the semester starts going? How do we feel? I feel like I didn't really have summer. <laughs> it's just nonstop. Like, I've never really taught online before, so, you know, midway through spring, like, that was a, an awakening. Like, I've learned so many new things and had to learn so much new technology, and it's just continued through the summer. So, yeah, I feel, I feel good overall, though. Like, I had a Zoom session with my first class today, and we have another one right after this in an hour. Um yeah, I will say Zoom fatigue is real, <laughs> but otherwise it's Yeah, lots of people have said that like summer was a myth this year. Yeah, just the amount of prepping that goes into online teaching, you know, to have everything ready to go, it's way more than I would have expected. So, and I taught over the summer too. <laughs> Machine. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like I'm like the only one of very few people that actually don't mind teaching online because um, I think you can you can reach so many pe- more people. Um, but I I really think the part that really gets people is the amount of extra work that you have to put into making sure your class works smoothly, just the, the technical aspect of it. But also reaching students and connecting with students is, I think, for a lot of people, a lot harder. Um, so, I don't know. In the spring, I was okay with it. I think um, part of it was that, of course, at Pomona College, there's a lot of, um, there aren't very many students. I mean, your classes are very small. So, uh, from the beginning, I mean, your classes are always small. And so, you can 
make that connection with students a little bit easier. I think it's a lot harder when you have like 500 students. Um, and, and I know colleagues who have that many students at ECR. And I was also lucky that my class at ECR was also very small, so we had about 40 students. And it was sort of the tail end of the winter quarter. And so we didn't have to do as much work. But I, I feel like a lot of this fatigue is from all the extra work that we have to put in. Um, and for me, that was, yeah, it was not as, as, as hard. Um, I don't mind. And I think part of it is that people also don't want to see themselves on camera. And I, also, I never really think about it being on camera. I always think about it and about the people that I'm looking at and talking to. Um, I don't know if that helps other people, but um, I haven't. I mean, it's a lot of work. <laughs> uh, but I think that's what throws people off is all the extra work that goes into the technical aspect of running the class, making it smooth, but also connecting with students. That's really I, I was just going to say I agree with you, Marilyn. I actually also don't mind teaching online. I teach a class online every semester. That being said, I think that there it's really difficult to prepare a bunch of new preps at once. So I teach four classes every semester and usually four unique courses. And so one of them was ready to go because I always teach it, but the other three it was like, you know, really rushing, trying to throw them together because as you, as you all mentioned that when you're teaching online, your class has to be ready to go the day one. It's not like when you're teaching in person and if things aren't, aren't determined yet, you have time to figure it out as you go. Like you have to have your modules built, your syllabus done, and the structure of the course done. So you're making a big commitment before the class starts. So I think it's a lot to create or transition over all the, the courses at once. But I think that the good news is that now that we've done the work, we can teach them online again in the future, I hope, because I, from my experience, Teaching online can be difficult the first time. It's more difficult than teaching in person, but by the third time you teach a class, it's easier than teaching in person. Mm -hmm. And like you said, you can really build great connections with students because you're reaching a population that otherwise may not have access to a college education. So it's really important work at the same time. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I will say I'm teaching face-to-face. So we're face-to-face. But then I also have to have Zoom where I have my students who don't want to come face-to-face also be able to come. Um, and so things are not great for me because <laughs> I have a 200-person class that I'm doing face-to-face and sort of this online hybrid model. So I kind of wish we were teaching it all online this semester. Give it time. <laughs> <laughs> By the time this comes out, you could very well be online. <laughs> and I'll just I'll just include like a an asterisk in the show notes. Dr. Clevenger is now teaching online. <laughs> I've taught online since fourteen, um, and yeah, I didn't get a summer break, so I taught you know all summer sessions. Um, and I usually like have my course prepped, and it's very simple. You just roll into it. Um, I, I love teaching online. I like teaching in person too. But um, so I'm already a weekend with one um, school. So two preps are a weekend, and three preps are three days in. And this has been wildly different than any other online experience. Um, and I don't know if it's 
you know, I'm at one R1 and one um, in a smaller state school, and they both have had massive learning management systems shut down, Zoom shut down the first day. Um, it was, and students, um, I, I don't know, if it, you know, if you sign up for a summer course that's online, you know, it's, or a winter course, it's, you're signing up for an online course. And um, so I think there's also a lot of confusion. I have, you know, first-year students who are emailing and are unfamiliar with the learning management system and, you know, aren't sure how to... So there's also a lot of follow-up prep, things that I would have normally done before, just send out the email and things move smoothly. Um, I've had to follow up with reaching people in multiple ways, um, where an email would have worked before. Now I have to have an email, a video on the learning management system, and a video on YouTube in case that shuts down. Um, so it's been a, it's been more work, and I I think it will settle down, but it's also um, I don't want to cause students any undue anxiety, yeah. especially right now. And I know that they're being really gracious with me, you know, like kind of zooms down, but um, it's been different. From, it's been a strangely different experience. Mm-hmm. Um, not bad just different just different yeah 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 i had to record a video on the first day to put on our lms just for my intro classes saying check your email <laughs> like i have no idea if you're engaging with anything uh i need you to check your email <laughs> please and i've never had to do that before right and so just trying to capture like all those i really feel like this is kind of playing catch up for all the small conversations that we have throughout the course of the day like before and after class or people just dropping into the office for like a a 10 second question or whatever I think all that's like magnified because it's online yeah I think I've had kind of a different experience than I think some of you guys because we actually went from a quarter system to a semester system this year at Cal State San Bernardino so I actually had a fully online spring semester while everything was going on um, kind of at the beginning of COVID. And so everyone was adapting really, really quickly. We got basically an extra week of spring break, right when grades are due, to flip all our classes. And so now over the summer, we also had to flip all our quarter, nine, 10 week classes to semester length, 15, 16 week length classes. And so I just feel like for us and for the students, it's all about kind of a burnout aspect of it. We just literally haven't stopped going. And it's also a learning curve. I mean, I don't know about you guys, but I am not the most technologically savvy person when it comes to all of these different things out there. Like, I'm seeing on Twitter all these photos of everyone's amazing, like, Twitter, or I'm sorry, uh, Zoom recording studio sessions, and I just have, like, a webcam on my laptop. (laughs) And, like, I bought a tiny little light, and I realized it glares off of my glasses, so I can't even do it because it just looks like I'm trying to pee. Right. Uh, I feel like that's a big part of kind of the the struggle of this term. Um, just all these new issues popping up, and I agree with the technological aspect of it too. I realized I hyperlinked my websites and all these different things, and I actually cross reference class hyperlinks. And so oh, no. one class got one syllabus, the other class got the other, and they're like, "I'm so sorry to bother you. I think I'm enrolled in the wrong class." Like, nope, it's just me. 
like here you go guys right i think i mean i think that's the biggest part of it because we're not there to kind of talk to them but i definitely feel like i've learned a lot from you guys as well right on um advice from colleagues but also twitter uh doing the slack thing has helped enormously trying to chat with students i feel like that's just help with that like before or after class conversation that you're talking about where I can like send them little things like little informal like 30 character reminders even and I feel like that's kind of even things out I don't know about you guys but that's that's been my experience generally I would say that you know like um, in the spring something that so in the fall, in my in my syllabus, I told all my students, look, um, I know that um, I'm not spending as much time on campus as many professors. I have a kid and they live, you know, 30 minutes away. So I'm not on campus as often as uh, some other professors. So if at any point you want Zoom or Skype, I, it's open. We can have a conversation. And very few students, some did, but very few. And it was only in the spring when we went to fully online that I, you know, some of my students told me, you know, um, uh, Professor Grell, um, really, I don't like Zoom. I really don't like video chatting. I really don't. And I was very kind of surprised by that, that students did not like being on Zoom. They did not care for Skype at all. And I, and I thought, you guys are always on the computer and the phones. Like, so what's so different about the phone and then being on Zoom? Like, isn't that, like, the same as video chatting? But, like, a lot of, I didn't realize the, the number of students who didn't care for that. Um, and for all kinds of reasons, not just because they didn't want to stare at themselves on the screen, but for all sorts of reasons they didn't yeah. want to. And I found that really hard um, because it's that all this um, little a few minutes after or before class when you get to chat with students you don't get as much of that and so you know having for example the zoom open a little bit before class and but no that that means that you have a lot you have the time (laughs) and for a lot of us we don't Uh, for me the driving aspect is i drove uh to work you know like 30 minutes an hour depending on the the time of day like that amount of time I had to myself, but also I spent all of it doing meetings and calls. So it was really sort of like tiring. And I think the hardest thing for me, even now, is there's the illusion that you have your work is separate from your home life, right? Like when you're traveling to class and you're. Uh, we know that we're always working as an academic. You're working at nights, you know, whenever you get the chance, but. There, there was basically zero like separation between like going to work and like and like teaching and then coming home. Like all of it just disappeared, and that I think was for me. I don't know about you guys. The hardest thing to sort of like manage and deal with. I felt like work and home was so is so integrated that I, you know, it's hard and it makes you very tired. Um, I think you have the idea there for like a good teaching sociology piece on the presentation of self on Zoom <laughs> among undergraduates. I think that could be really interesting to talk to them about about how do they how do they consider like FaceTiming with their friends and family versus having having mandatory synchronous 
which is a word I hope I never have to hear again after this year, <laughs> uh, class time, and why why so eager to do one but then not the other? But then how eager are they, are they come to, are how eager are they to come to class in the first place? I guess is another thing to think about. And I found that this does not help with work life, house, office boundaries. But um, I too really dislike Zoom, and for for a number of reasons. Um, but I love chatting with friends um, with FaceTime or whatever. And students, so I just opened up um, and said, "You can text me, or if you know you have." international number and you want to use WhatsApp, we can do that. And I receive, I should do the numbers, I should I should do, make this quantitative, but um, so many text messages that are, um, can you remind me what page this was on? Or do we need to do, ex- I mean, things that would be a legitimate, like, reasonable email. Mm-hmm are just so much easier, I think, for people to text. And that has required me to kind of lower any expectation of boundaries. I do say I'm not responding to you at 2 a.m., but if that's when you need to text me because that's when that question is on your mind, that's fine. Um, And it's really improved students that did not, even when we changed in spring, we made it halfway, well, not even halfway, but we made it some face-to-face. And students who were not active in the classroom, maybe didn't speak up in conversations, were quick to send me a very short text message. Um, and I, I've heard conversations on why that's perhaps not great pedagogy, you know, preparing folks for whatever career, but um, it has helped us learn in the classroom. I mean, in my class. So. I've noticed that too with students who are normally shy or would not feel comfortable speaking up in class. The switch to online, I've gotten to know them so much better just through things like we use Discord, which is similar to Slack, so it's a chat app. They feel more comfortable chatting on there, but also just like reflection type assignments. Like I started using blogging and other things to give them a platform to show, you know, their informed opinions about controversial issues. I just feel like I've gotten to know them so much more than even in person that I was resistant to online teaching at first, and it's just really opened my mind and my perspective that it does have the potential to be more inclusive and even more accessible. So I think for me, that's actually a good thing that's come out of this, because I never would have chose to teach online myself, but now that I've gone through it and seen the potential benefits, it's made me much more open and and I was able to take a six-week class about teaching online, so the best practices in online teaching, and I think that helped a ton, just to make me feel confident and show me all the tips and tricks that I can do. Yeah, I think part of the, the adjustment, too, is like, at least for me, right, is thinking about how I was spending time in class, so I, for the last several years, I've I've taught Monday, Wednesday, Friday, four classes each day in 50-minute chunks. Um, And my students, after maybe like week three or four, are very good at figuring out how to derail me (laughs) and 
and get me to go off on whatever tangent or and and I'm I'm convinced that they will like plot ahead like we're gonna we're gonna distract Wilzak today um, with whatever dumb thing and then I'll be like well well whatever like they need a mental health day right it's fine like it's okay we didn't talk about whatever whatever theory today because they're they don't care about the theories so much anyway and let's just talk about whatever thing happened on campus and now that is gone <laughs> right like we the move online i for me it has been like trying to relearn how to control like the classroom space if that makes sense so i i just i don't have that ability to like wing it online um, and be like, you guys are way, like, I can tell looking at you that you are burned out and we're just going to take a day to, like, just joke around and whatever. Like, because it doesn't matter. But online, it's like, okay, here's how we're going to spend the week. <laughs> and I hope that everybody gets to your work during the week. Um, and just go from there. So, uh, yeah, it's just, like, trying to to figure out how they're spending their time during the week as opposed to like, okay, I see them for 50 minutes today, uh, I might let them out a couple minutes early, or we might get distracted for 10 minutes talking about like something that happened in the news, or whatever. I might have to do like an impromptu pitch about like, your capstone isn't going to be that bad, <laughs> it's okay, <laughs> right? Like those kinds of texts, uh, which just don't exist now online. You know, I think in the spring, one of the things that I did... And I think the students, I got really good feedback from the students on, and I would never do in person, is to have, dedicate like the first 10 minutes of my class, and almost every day, to a checking in on the students. Like, how are you guys doing? How are you dealing with things? And I found that it was very helpful for students, and then we kind of, I sort of built it in, said, okay, we're going to take a few minutes every day to just sort of like talk. And so we had this, and I tried to sort of, uh, integrated into the class or well, whatever was was being discussed then we move on to the actual lecture and we, we sort of integrate whatever was on people's minds at the time and I and the students really liked that sort of like checking in part, that part that made them feel like okay so they're not alone and so for me it's that extra right that we didn't get a chance to do in class um, you know when people come in in the beginning and the professors here we kind of chit chat before class but checking in on students during a pandemic is so important and it makes them uh, know that you care and then other people are probably going through some of the same things and that is extremely important mm -hmm. but I wanted to ask other people if they gave their students the WhatsApp because I I wouldn't necessarily have done that for my whole class, but I have a small group of students that I do research with, and I gave them for the very first time my WhatsApp, my number for WhatsApp. And it was incredibly helpful because I know the, for them it's an extra thing to write an email. I don't know why, but like the chat, the quick chat is like super important. I think Slack does the same has the same sort of feel to it for students and, and maybe that's the, you know we get more response from students that way but I absolutely do not regret giving my um, research students um, my uh, WhatsApp because we cleared out so many like issues that came in while they were working on the project that um, you know I know it would they would not send an email they would wait and sit on it um, so I don't know if anyone else gave um, news WhatsApp for their students 
I I have, and sometimes I, I would say this is a four paragraph text message. Like it's <laughs> this is incredibly long, but um, I also found it really beneficial. Um, and it's just a for, to me, it's it's um, just a way to communicate. You know, mm. I still prefer to email people, but um, if that's how they want to contact me, I'm, I'm fine with that. Mm-hmm. I haven't, I haven't run into that this, um, or like since we went online, um, but in the past I've given students my cell phone number before, um, who were either in crisis, um, and I was legitimately worried about, um, or because we were like, I would, I took, I've taken students to like ASC and stuff before, so like here's my cell. Don't get lost in DC, kind of thing. <laughs> yeah, I've only ever done it with uh, research assistants and interns. Um, that seems to kind of help build a connection. I feel like they actually really enjoy that, but I haven't done it with students. But I think the closest I'm getting is Slack. Essentially, I mean the same thing, just it's open to everyone. Although you can technically direct message me mm-hmm. and not have others kind of present, which you have done. Mm-hmm. Um, to kind of notify me of some issues um, that they're either going through or just when I had a technological fail. Um, And they were just, like, being nice about it and not wanting to call me out to everyone, (laughs) Um, which I appreciate, but just call me out. It's fine. Um, But, yeah, I think it definitely... This has changed the game a little bit and how we can be creative in terms of connecting with students. Because that's, I think, my favorite part is being able to interact with students, and I miss that aspect of it. Zoom does not convey it, and me sitting down and teaching is very different. I mean, you get the hand gestures, but that's about it. I know. Yeah, I miss, like, the theatricality of it so much. They just can't replicate here. There are cool things you can do with, like, virtual backgrounds and stuff. So I've started doing, like, my background is a famous prison and that kind of thing, so for fun. And, like, today I had a check-in with them, which I love. Marilyn mentioned the check-ins. I've been doing that so I would have a grid with pictures of my dog and he is a very expressive dog with weird faces and I would say like how are you feeling about the semester starting one through six and most of them picked the one where his head was in the couch cushions like not about it but like just stuff like that I think is a fun way that I had no idea the potential you could do that online so I think there are fun ways to have theatrics but it's not you know what we would usually think of mm-hmm. yeah I'm, I'm thinking about starting like my class discussions a few minutes few minutes early and setting the share screen to just like lo-fi hip hop on or something like that on YouTube, just for like I did that today with Spotify. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a way to play it through the computer though. Okay. Yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> so I'm curious if anyone is like so I'm strictly asynchronous. Um, these check-in involved things, how they're translating for other asynchronous folks? I am also entirely asynchronous, so I got the impression that I was the only one, so I'm glad to hear that you are as well, Jordan. Um, I'm entirely asynchronous. I One thing, so I haven't given them my WhatsApp. That's an excellent idea. I just had never thought of it. But one thing I'm trying this semester that I've never done before is I turned on the chat function in Canvas. So I think that kind of works the same way, although they do have to be logged into Canvas, but Canvas has an app, too. So we'll see if some of them chat that way. 
But some of the things I do do, like what Bree was just saying to in the asynchronous classes, like have you all used Padlet in your classes? Are you familiar with Padlet? Well, Padlet is like a tap board and it integrates into Canvas perfectly or seamlessly, I should say. And so I'll have them like post memes. Like, so one I haven't given yet, spoiler, um, is as I plan on giving them all um, a tap board, a Padlet about how do you feel about 2020? And then everyone can post a funny meme, like tap it to the board about how they feel about 2020. So I think there are really creative ways. But I, and I think being asynchronous, you know, my job has changed so much because instead of every week uh, preparing my um, in-person classes, so far what I've done these first few days is just like add lecture notes to all my slides, um, create mini lectures and record myself talking. Um, just so just doing a lot of different work. So I don't think it's better or worse, it's just very different. And just really spending a lot of time thinking about like how can you make each of these modules each week different and creative to keep the students, you know, engaged and excited about the topic and still build that collaborative learning environment. So yeah, I'd love to hear what you all are doing asynchronously. I was gonna say I'm also so I'm teaching in person, right, as I mentioned, but the program that I am in the bachelor's degree and the master's degree can be done completely online. So I do teach online. I'm teaching one class online that's asynchronous. Um, and I've had Zoom sessions that were optional, that were not lecture, that were, I call them jam sessions about whatever. I love <laughs> it. It was gonna be. And so it was victims or victim adjacent, but it wasn't a lecture. It was just like a discussion about it. And so I'm a big nerd, like a huge nerd. And so I will say, you know, like this week, um, you know, Dean and Sam from Supernatural, victim or offender, right? And so they're supposed to ideally pick a theory to talk about, are they victim or are they offender based on the theory? But it's basically just like, talking and it ends up being about all different kinds of things. So that's been really fun to do the asynchronous. I know I was gonna say it's a good idea. Yeah, no, it's a really good idea. And I think like having it be optional is important. Yeah. Um, so that's why I do they can participate in Zoom once a week or they can participate and you think the idea to do like discussion board style things through Discord, yep. which is like Slack. So, Andy, I don't know if you want to talk a bit more about that, but that's been a really great option. So, they can choose either mm -hmm. a sync once a week or they can do it anytime they like on Discord. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I. I have optional Zoom discussions for now all all four of my classes, although I'm going to merge the two social one-on-ones into just one meeting just to make everybody's life simpler. Um, and all four classes are on Discord. Um, the intro classes, I've, I've broken them into discussion groups and created like separate rooms on there. Um, so everything's color-coded. Um, that's been like part of the learning curve um, because uh, some of them are very familiar with that app and others have never have never used it before and are very apologetic um, that they've never used it before. So um, having to do like some some coaching slash counseling slash cheerleading the first week of just like you're gonna it's gonna be okay. Like I'm not a hard ass about this stuff. I'm more concerned about you being safe and you learning. And um, you know if it's if it's October and you're still not uh, lined up with this then we're gonna have <laughs> we're gonna have to have a talk but um it's the first week like why would i why would i 
be all angry about that. But I just posted their discussion questions today. Um, each class has six groups, um, like five or six people in each group. Um, I gave them each just different questions um, from the reader uh, and told them, you know, this is to simulate class discussion as best as we can. Um, because right away there was like, well, when is when is this due? Is it due by 11.59 p.m. on Friday? Like, well, no, because, <laughs> like, if you think about think about it, like, that's just trying to get the last word in <laughs> and then, like, running out of the conversation. Like, that's not, that's not what we're trying to do. I just want you to be, like, thinking about and talking about the material. And so, like, in that sense, I think that online and in person are very similar, right? Because, like, trying to get your teaching style across, um, especially when students have kind of become not kind of, are, are very socialized into um, maybe some bad practices that academia has uh, perpetuated over the centuries, maybe, uh, trying to, to push back against that and be like, I, I'm not really concerned with the deadline, like, just do it, and do it do it good. Um, it's always, like, a fun, frustrating start of the year. But yeah, like, I will use Discord... Um, as just like I treat it as like a group chat almost, like um, one of my classes is a like a crime history course, and I was reading this book last night about this this um, super corrupt cop in the NYPD in the early 1900s, and just like randomly came across this thing that the Yankees were financed by this major gambler in New York City. Um, who had, I think, over 250 gambling houses um, in Manhattan, um, and including one of the most, one of, if not the most profitable um, place, like, turning over, like, I don't know, maybe $200,000 a night in 1900 is a fortune. Um, so just this morning, I was like, hey, just by the way, I learned that the Yankees are <laughs> founded on, on like, pseudo-organized crime money. <laughs> and, like, I live in Northeast Pennsylvania, and we have, like, lots of... It's, it's like, a weird, like, New York-slash-Philadelphia culture here. So, um, just dropped that tidbit in the in the chat and then walked away just to let them deal with it on their own. Um, and it's been also useful, too. Like, the Discord was, was active all summer, even though I, I wasn't teaching. Um, the, the one that I made when we went online back in the spring was active. They, they used it to keep in touch with each other. Um, to share news and, and gossip about, like, are we coming back? Um, what have you heard? What's going on on campus? Stuff like that. It's been a really good tool to kind of, like, create that community that we're losing. And I think actually, like, beneficial, too. So when we do go back in person, like, I still plan on using these these systems because I think that they... I mean, I dislike that it kind of creates the sense that I'm available 24-7, and so I'm going to have to kind of find ways to create boundaries there. Um, but I think it helps them learn better, because they, ha they also now have the opportunity to engage with me 24-7, too, you know? And there's more opportunities to learn. And so, like, that's, that's where it comes back to, like, trying to rethink instead of, like, 150 minutes a week where I have them, and I have to try to maximize that to either hit their learning or uh, do all the emotional labor, um, or both. Um, now I have a week, like, thinking about it week to week, and, like, okay, what do we want to accomplish this week is just a totally different way of thinking that I don't think we were, a lot of us were ever trained to approach teaching that way. Well, I, I think that, but the issue, though, is that, like, 
is the boundaries. Yeah. Right? Um, I mean, my so my students um, that I have that have my WhatsApp number. Part of the reason why I did that was that I have international students, right, who are in Singapore, in China, and so you know, trying to work around that time difference is is a huge issue, but. Sometimes I'm up and my students will text me, you know, like one o'clock in the morning or four o'clock in the morning. And if I am up, you know, I will respond because, well, I'm up. I'm going to respond. But it also gives them, as you said, the idea or the feeling that I will always respond, you know, within like five minutes and, you know, that I'm at uh, fully at their disposal. And it's not that I am not a little willing to, you know, engage with the students, but also there's that feeling, right, that, um, um, mm-hmm. and they do not do that, and my students are not like, oh, we can do whatever, and she's completely to our, at our disposal, and they're always very um, professional, if you will, with with the WhatsApp number, but it still is that idea that um, I'm always available, right, and I think that was kind of, this kind of also the part of the issue with you know, doing online and being at home during the pandemic. It's uh, this idea that, like, like, I'm always working, I'm always available, and it's it's hard for me, and I don't know how you guys are dealing with it. And uh, sometimes I will just tell everyone I'm not available in that time, and I will respond to you in 24 hours. But I always, whenever I do that, I feel like I am putting up a wall, and I, and I don't like that feeling, um, but I don't know how you guys deal with that particular issue. That is one I struggle with time. So I can, I guess, go. I'm. If you get an email from me, you have my cell phone number. So I give my cell phone number to everybody. Um, the interesting thing about that is people don't usually use it. Um, and so not that I want them to, I guess, but... Um, I started giving students my cell phone number. I've tried the WhatsApp, which I've used when we've traveled internationally because I take students on study abroad trips. It's useful for that. Um, But I've given them my phone number in case they needed me. Um, I started doing that in all complete honesty. Um, God, probably like eight years ago when I first started teaching at ISU, I had a student who I was worried was in a domestic violence situation and kind of what Andy said, the student in crisis. Um, and she said, if I wouldn't have had your phone number, I don't know who I would have called. Not that I'm the hero, right? Or I'm not saying any of us are the heroes. Um, but I was able to tell her who to call. Like, I didn't go over there to intervene. Um, so I started giving out my cell phone number to really anybody. Um, if, you, if I email you, you call me. Rarely does someone ever call me or text me. Um, also, now that I'm department chair, I also feel like I have to deal with a lot of different things I didn't have to deal with when I was a faculty member. So I've been more open about those things. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it depends on, like I said, I don't know why people don't, I feel like I'm sounding like a really pathetic person. Like, why are people texting me or calling me? We can put that in the show notes. We can, I can encourage people. Shelly's available. I've given it out, but people haven't used it. So I have the opposite reaction of everybody gets it right, but no one ever really texts me or calls me. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I should clarify too, like, I, I, when I started this job, I 
I didn't I didn't realize like the amount of emotional labor that I would be doing. So like I have I have students who, um, like they send me cards on Father's Day <coughs> and stuff because I'm like surrogate dad, and so like that's the level of like that's why I've had to give my number out to people because they are their parents are not the best <laughs> and so i have to do i have to do that stuff but there's also been like the crises right like the first the first time i did it it was a student who uh was worried that he was going to get into a fight on campus uh and so i was like here's my phone uh if you think something bad is going to happen call me and i'll come get you um luckily i didn't have to and he was he he listened to me and just stayed in his dorm um, but like stuff like that, right? Um, has come up over the last several years. So I, one thing I wanted to ask you all about is um, what kinds of what kinds of bad practices have you seen, like either people moving away from because of of the pandemic, or um, maybe bad practices that are now being like having a lot of light shed on them because everything is online now. Have you had any experience with that? And it's okay if no, because I have a producer who can edit out this question, and we can just skip right over it. Like, <laughs> I mean, the pandemic pretty much shed a lot of light on people and the way they treat students. Yeah, you know how shitty if that's a word, how they um, treat the students, and how stuck people are on one particular mode of teaching yeah. or are of thinking how students learn, right? Yeah. And uh, particularly, and I think, I don't know about you guys, but in the spring, the big issue was assessment. How do you assess students, you know, in, a, in the middle of a pandemic? Man, that created so much, so oh. much, so many arguments. And it really is about, you know, what ultimately our objectives are. And, like, people are really stuck on, like, you need to give students A's and B's and C's and D's, and that's super important because how else can you tell if a student has learned the material if you can't test them and see if they can get an A or a B? <laughs> you know, I, and so for me, that was a huge issue that like some people were really stuck on that, um, and they couldn't get, they didn't know how to move past it. Right, they couldn't figure out. It was particularly hard for people in the hard sciences. Like you know, like how am I supposed to know if a student knows all the formulas? And it's sort of, so basically, you're admitting that all you're doing is teaching students how to memorize formulas. Great job. <laughs> I mean, it, it was it was really. <laughs> I know me too. Yeah, I'm not saying that other people can't do assess students the way that they want to. But that was, wow. <laughs> That's all I could say in the spring. That was really kind of, it really, professors are really stuck on when I teach, I need to give a test. And the test tells me whether or not the students have learned the material. And this has worked forever. It has always worked. And really good students are the students who learned the material. Right? And good students will, um, you know, it doesn't matter if it's a pandemic, really good students are going to still get that A. And I'm here to say that that is not the case. Yeah. There's so much that goes into 
you know, creating, especially in private liberal arts colleges, where you have, you know, a, a, a sizable portion of students who come from quote unquote marginalized backgrounds. I mean, you just, it's just, it's just not, I mean, so many issues of equity uh, and uh, inclusion that comes that comes into play in assessment that professors are not willing. Some did. I, I mean, some students, some professors did come around to understanding that you know we're not just testing students, and it's more than just giving a test and seeing who gets an A and a B. But a lot of faculty mm-hmm. had issues. <laughs> I don't know about you guys. Yeah, I, I feel like there's some similarity with that, um, what I've seen in terms of assessments. Um, my university has a very large, minor, it's very large in terms of minority serving. Um, we have students from really kind of um, very low income backgrounds, people who live out kind of, you know, we think about the middle America as being very rural, but we actually have quite a lot of rural areas in Southern California in the desert areas and communities and in the mountains really close to um, the mountains, right? San Bernardino Mountains, Big Bear, Arrowhead. We're near Palm Desert, uh, near Palm Springs. We have a Palm Desert campus. And so a lot of our students are going through all these things. And I did a survey at the beginning of each term. And the things that I've learned, I mean, most of our students work part-time or full-time or are now working multiple jobs. A lot of them are DACA students and are literally so afraid of being deported. Um, a lot of them have English as a second language, uh, not necessarily just in my class, but in the university in general. Um, and I think a lot of them, I mean, a lot of them have food and housing insecurity, homelessness, which Cal State system um, actually addresses by giving people homes if they need them, if there's an issue. But I feel like a lot of professors that I've seen kind of, they're kind of stuck on that assessment issue and that. They're like, well, students can just Google the test banks from the textbook that I use. And I'm like, well, why don't you just create a different test? I know that's a lot of work, but at the same time, like, yeah, maybe they bought Cengage's test bank and students can Google that. But at the same time, just, you know, maybe put a little creativity in it. Don't use all hundred questions. <laughs> use 20. Add a few of your own. Maybe have an application question in there, right? Um, have some creativity in some of the, I know it's a lot more work and maybe I'm privileged because, you know, my classes are anywhere from 15 to 40 students, so I can kind of do a little bit more. But I feel like there's definitely some of that kind of, they don't know yet how to do that, which was an interesting experience because there were so many online classes, I feel like, teaching professors how to teach online this summer that I've just heard from colleagues from my own university and I'm just fascinated by all of the people's kind of like where like pedagogy from 20 years ago, 40 years ago to now. And I feel like that's a completely different conversation. But yeah, I agree. I think that there's definitely some of that. Um, I feel like also a lot of, like I also teach completely asynchronous in terms so many of our students don't have reliable Wi-Fi or internet. And also there's power outages because California and brownout blackouts um, and fires. And I feel like a lot of them just like they can't, they can't handle all of these things. Like, so many students thank me for not having a synchronous lecture, because they're like, I'm just getting over COVID. I didn't feel like zooming in from my bed. Like, yeah, I didn't feel like having you zoom in from your bed either while you're sick. Uh, that just doesn't really bode well for learning. Uh, so I feel like there's just like so many little practices. That's where I was like mm-hmm. thinking about the learning curve. 
mm-hmm. where I think for some faculty, for some disciplines, it's just larger. I mean, chemistry, I don't know how I would teach chemistry right now. I mean, aside from the fact that I'm not a chemist. <laughs> so, you know. Yep. There's definitely a concern about, te- uh, about cheating. Like, yes. that doesn't even, like, when I'm teaching in general, I don't even think about that. Because the way I set up my assignments, you can't cheat. Like, it's your reflection. Like, how are you going to find answers for that? You won't. So I think, you know, hopefully it's making professors rethink approaches. I don't know if you've experienced that. Some still seem resistant, but I'm hopeful that maybe it's made people rethink their approaches in general. Yeah, I mean, for me personally, like, I've tried to add some creativity to assignments and individualism. So, like, my law and courts class, I have a code in the law. Every week there's a question. They all have to sign up for a state and California. At the beginning, they all get assigned California. Our home state. So they have to do research. And then I also have another one for the anti-racism BLM question related, right? And so they can't cheat on those. They have to do primary research, right? They, I mean, maybe they could kind of cheat off of people from my previous term, but I asked for new sources from the last 60 days. So really, there's not much you can kind of cheat on that, quote unquote. Um, obviously, there's stuff from the textbook, but I think, yeah, there's definitely a a little um, creativity that needs to be involved, I think. Mm-hmm. So, so the cheating, the cheating, I have never quite understood the obsession with students are going to cheat. I mean, I, would, I know it sounds terrible, but I go, if students cheat, like, like, I mean, like, like they cheat, they cheat, right? Um, but in the sense that, like, I, I also, we don't, I never, I didn't teach from a textbook, and so you know, any questions that are asked are primarily based on like the students and what they read and how they they understand it. But also, I am not a big fan of giving tests, <laughs> and in the like, you know, I I want to know ultimately whether or not a student understood um, the material and. Um, whatever my objective for the class is, right? Can they think critically about issues around globalization? Can they think critically about issues of race and gender? I mean, that's what I want them to get out of the class, right? And if I give them, you know, like a, a quiz that, you know, they can get the answers from online, it's like, for me, that, that, that doesn't do very much. It doesn't tell me whether or not they understood the material and they can think critically about the material, right? And so for a lot of my classes, I, I have, they were project-oriented or paper-oriented where I give students the opportunity to develop throughout the class so that at the end they have a final product that they feel very comfortable with that they put a lot of work into. And, you know, I do a point system and the points I kind of give away. Like, if you do the assignment, if you make an effort, you get the points. Right? It's like, um, you know, if you can show me that you understand the material, that's it, right? That's what I want. And I always tell students in my class, if you come to the class to, um, so I can tell you to read something, right? And I'm going to tell you what it is that you're reading. I'm going to explain it to you. And then you're going to write a paper and tell me what I just told you while you're in the wrong class, right? Uh, and, and I always tell students, you're going to read you're going to see if you can understand it, write something about it, whether it's a reflection piece. Tell me what you think you got out of it. 
when we come back to class, we're going to talk, right? But I'm not going to tell you the material, and then you're going to regurgitate it to me. I, you know, a lot of my undergraduate education was like that, right? Where we read all these, you know, quote unquote classic texts. The professor tells you what it is you're supposed to get out of it, and then you write a paper where you tell the professor all the things that he just told you. And I and I feel like when the assessment, the civil assessment thing, the obsession with like cheating with like are they going to get a paper written online and then give it to me I think when we as a faculty as faculty members are obsessing about it that becomes an issue when it's sort of like also lots of low stakes low risk low pressure assignments I fill my class with that right um, and when you're doing asynchronous there's all kinds of ways to um, create modules where the students are on, like answering questions, short answer questions as they're reading, for example, right? What, that are not like a grade, right? It's like, did you do it or did you not do it? Yep. Right? Did you understand it or did you not? Or did you not? And you know what I mean? And so, a lot for a lot of faculty members, that that change in um, attitude or even, I mean, that's what we're talking about pedagogy, right? Like. And, and, and making it inclusive or not. Um, and some of these, um, what I saw, and going back to your answering your question, is that I saw lots of flaws in people's approach to teaching and learning. That's what I saw um, uh, in their pedagogy, the, the way they approach it. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's that was huge. I think the, the, um, the pandemic really put a spotlight on it and made this these professors and his faculty members very defensive mm-hmm. and very um, um, put off by, by all of it. Um, and um, I saw a lot of that, you know, and a lot of professors not really wanting to engage students at, in the end, you know, it's not, a, it's not really about engaging with students. For mm-hmm. And that's what I really saw in the pandemic during the spring. Yeah, because we know that we have colleagues who teach because they like the sound of their own voice. <laughs> right? And and the shift online has really jeopardized um, their ability to uh, be the center of everybody's universe. <laughs> uh, and then be really punitive when, when people uh, defy, defy their teaching and say that actually... Uh, that class is not the center of, of their world um, and be really punitive. I was part of um, a committee on my campus that um, signed off on an amended attendance policy for this semester um, because we haven't gone online yet. Um, and I think maybe about half of half of our classes are still face-to-face or hybrid or whatever. Um, so anyway, the new attendance policy is that faculty can't punish students who get COVID <laughs> for missing class or anything, <laughs> and in the meeting, um, somebody and, and somebody said something about like, how are we going to, like, what are we going to say to people who are mad about this? And I said, well, the sun will come up tomorrow. <laughs> you know, the world is not going to stop turning if people don't come to your to your ex class, and it's very tempting for me to like put specific people at my institution on blast right now and I'm not going to. Um, but like, you know, the world the world keeps on spinning, man. Like if you if you don't have people coming to your class, like everything's okay. You know, it's not it's not about you. It's not it's not directed at your ego. Right? Your class should not be the opportunity to, to 
prove to a bunch of people who are, uh, in many cases, considerably younger and less experienced than you how brilliant you are. Like, that's not the point of teaching. And I think for a lot of people, for a long time, it's been the point of teaching. It's like, I have this degree. You are going to validate me. You are paying to come and validate <laughs> my ego. And now we can't do that <laughs> because they can't figure out how to get Zoom to work or <laughs> or never or never learn how to check their email to begin with and are now like, what am I supposed to do? What's my password? <laughs> I think that also gets to the fact that it's just a lot more, kind of what we were saying this whole time, right? It's a lot more work to teach online. Yeah. Um, and so if you could just rely on your multiple choice test <laughs> bank... And, yep. I don't know, record yourself standing in front of a whiteboard, talking for three hours straight, um, really ranting, and then, like, if you could get away with it, then I guess that's what you're going to do, yep. right? I think it depends on, kind of, what the expectations are of you as a faculty member, too, and what institution you go to, and how much they value student learning. The same um, yellow lecture notes from 1992. <laughs> <laughs> I had an instructor once who had uh, literally um, math notes, stats notes written out, and there were jokes in there from literally the 90s. Literally, like, if you looked at their lecture notes, you could see little scribbles. And you yeah. saw a date at the top. And those were really, I mean, those are, like, you have not revised your pedagogy in a few decades. Yeah. Like, that's actually impressive to me. Yeah. That that's just staying. It makes, I like. My my first question is like, obviously whatever jokes were in there were bad, and like whatever pop culture references were already dated. So if it's a '90s lecture, it's probably referencing shows from like the '70s. So I just I just wonder like how many kids sat there and like did not get the Happy Days reference or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> it was a lot of music references, which I kind of appreciate. Yeah, I like music from like not today necessarily. Uh, <laughs> so that was good. But, yeah, yep. I mean, I think it's just, it's a lot more work. And especially with everything going on, a lot of people just fall back on what they know or what they're comfortable with. Uh, and, I mean, it's some levels I can't help them. If I had, like, five little kids at home running around as a single parent, I don't know that I would be investing a ton of time in all this new pedagogy and taking all these online classes and, you know, revising and reprepping classes in a different format. Um not the point that needs to happen completely, mm-hmm. but you have to adapt. Yeah. But I think that all of the people who are resisting that aren't the people with the five kids. You know, a lot of times the people with the five kids are the ones putting in that extra work. I, I hate to say it. They're the ones putting in that extra work, you know, completely frazzled and doing all of it. Whereas, you know, some of these fully tenured, you know, <laughs> teaching 15, 20 years are the ones who are sort of like, you know, I've been teaching this class since 1995, and it's worked great. <laughs> you know, I, I, for me at least, my experience, these are the people who are not willing to, and mind you, it's not everyone, right? There's some older faculty members I know with tenure who put a lot of effort into teaching and are on the up and up with all the new methods and adjust, right, to new an inclusive pedagogy, but a lot of them aren't, right? A lot of them are sitting back and saying mm-hmm. it's worked for so long and, you know, like the ones in chemistry or statistics or math who say, math has not changed. 
you know, and that means the my the way I teach it should not change at all, right? Um, and so that's has been my experience, right? The people with my kids are the ones doing a lot of the extra work too. I think for me that not only did it um, shed light on bad practices by individuals, but it also sheds light on the neoliberal university, which is that in the United States, not to be too controversial, but in the United States, most of us are on nine-month contracts. And so uh, as we started this episode, most people here, it sounds like for most professors everywhere, worked most of the summer. So one of the issues is if you're trying to convert two, three, four classes online, and if you've never taught them in person, that's even harder to create an online class. That's a lot of hours. You're not going to be able to do that if you start on August 15th when your contract starts again. So you're working all summer um, doing this work that is technically uncompensated labor. So it's not just you know the individual, but it's the incentive of the mm-hmm. university structure because we're told that summer is our time to work for free doing research. <laughs> yeah. There's other free labor you're supposed to provide over the summer. <laughs> for me, I spent my entire summer working on my third year review as well, which for those of you who haven't done that yet, <laughs> or have, you know, I know some of you, but I'm telling you, it's of them. That's really time consuming too, so you have all these other things that you're expected to do at the same time. So it's just really challenging to balance that. And then, you know, like Marie said, I was also teaching over the summer because that's how you, you know, you do something by your income by teaching more classes. Oh, just thinking more broadly beyond teaching as well. Um, the one of the things that I was really—I mean, I'm happy that a lot of light is shed on inequality within the system. Um, not that I think that it's going to change because I, you know, not bringing your kid, not caring for your child while you're teaching, or something I mean, like wild, you know. Um, labor kind of negotiations like that but to see conferences not happen I think really like that's a that hits people really hard if your you know entire world is around presenting at a conference or how do you measure um, you know your research productivity and and what you're doing and um, having grants change all of these things I think reflect back on like what is this what is the knowledge project like what is the role of the university what does it mean to educate someone and then why are the folks that are carrying you know and the, the departments often financially that are adjuncting and you know TAs um, being paid the least without insurance you know I mean it's I know Right now, in, in many departments, the people who are doing the face-to-face teaching are the graduate teaching assistants and adjuncts. Who are, I know, you know, TAs. I think have the op- the option to have um, insurance, but the others don't. You know, you have to pay that out of your mm-hmm. two thousand dollar class stipend, and um, so it's just it's really. I think it it's. And it's starting to show the rest of the world that, you know, having instructor or professor in front of your name is not necessarily, does not equate with any type of financial status unless you, you know, were grandfathered into the, the like, old white guy system. Um, so I'm, I, 
I, I guess at one point it's really exciting because things can change, and at the other, it's like how do we make that happen um, mm-hmm. while also providing whatever services you know students need to learn. Yeah. So one thing that I said on the panel that I recorded yesterday was that like the shift online has at least as somebody who is like working to build like an interdisciplinary podcast project and um, we started our own conference um, and like there's all kinds of exciting ways that we're thinking about expanding these ideas and branching them out is that uh, not only has the shift online kind of forced a lot of people to rethink how they teach it's, I think it's also actually like destroying the silo uh, system however you want to think of it that that has really plagued um, academia and has had us uh, isolated and cut off from each other and kind of competing against each other um, because now it's I think very clear right like if, if we want academia to survive and like evolve into whatever it's going to evolve into then we need to like stop thinking about this in terms of our discipline and more in terms of our topics and like the 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 areas of interest or the social problems we want to address or the art we want to create um the the stories we want to tell and just kind of um make those connections that way right i actually have to head off for my zoom meeting with my class um but this has been really fun i know you'll continue the conversation and i look forward to listening to it after um the only other thing i have to say is uh I've always been interested in graphic design, and this shift to online has awakened that interest again, because I've done all kinds of stuff, like I created liquid syllabi, which are, instead of a PDF 20-page paper filled with policies, it's a website that's engaging and interactive with videos and GIFs and memes and all kinds of stuff. And so it's just made me, the creative side of me, more open and awoken now, which is cool, so... On that note, I'm going to head to my next class. Very cool. Have a good class. Thank you. Bye, everyone. Bye. Uh, Yeah, actually, on that note, too, um, I feel like, ironically, us going online has actually created a lot more connections Mm -hmm. online, um, a lot more resource sharing. I feel like there's a lot more materials out there. Mm -hmm. I borrowed heavily from Everett. I mean, I ended up from Bree's um, liquid syllabi or website Mm -hmm. syllabi. I mean, I looked at those. I looked at everyone else's. I mean, I ended up creating my own, which I had not done before that. Mm-hmm. Um, started using different materials, different research resources. Um, I feel like so many people are more willing to share things right now, yep. which I think is a really cool shift. I feel like, I don't know, you know, depending on who you ask, some people are very protective of the courses they've designed or some of the resources or materials. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe part of it is because I'm relatively new to academic Twitter. I like had a Twitter, but I didn't really start using it until like maybe the last like nine, ten months. Mm-hmm. Um, and even then, I was kind of a lurker. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I feel like just seeing this kind of shift in where and how people collaborate. You know, yep. the writing groups that are Zoom writing groups that I belong to for research or for teaching collaborations or just. We're sending each other resources and notes. And, you know, I created this assignment. Do you want it? Just to save ourselves the prep mm-hmm. time 
and also to open up ourselves and learn from each other. I think it's just a really, really cool um, byproduct of a really shitty 2020. <laughs> um, I think that that's, that's kind of my take on um, a lot of what's going on right now. But yeah, I'm definitely very grateful for that. I think that, you know, there's a lot more this year than there was, but um, as someone with, um, because of my educational background um, and being black in the United States, when I started using, when I started actually really using Twitter, I found it very helpful as a black person to find other black scholars um, and black academics because honestly, like most of the places I've been, I, you know, I was thinking back to, like, for example, my undergrad. I had one black professor, my entire undergrad, and it was my French teacher. And I wasn't taking it, I wasn't taking the class at my actual school. It was at a sister college. Um, So for me, you know, being on Twitter was about connecting with other black scholars and also getting really good ideas about the kinds of books that I want to read, that I am interested in reading, that can supplement like all the other things that I've read, and to think about the things I've read critically, right? Because, you know, yes, I've read Rousseau and Plato and Aristotle and all of that fun things as a, you know, as an undergrad political science major. But, you know, I started reading a lot more broadly and integrating a lot more um, scholars of color like from being on Twitter I mean some of it I've done on my own but it's my my um, scholarship, the things that I do and read now is a lot more interesting than it was let's see, seven years ago right? Um, and for me Twitter has been that way of connecting with other black and, uh, scholars, people of color but also you know, there are all these resources, like all these syllabi that are going around and all these reading lists, and um, it's actually quite useful. And I, I found Twitter, and, you know, really it's, I've found a lot of it is how much you want to get out of it yeah. and what kinds of things you want. I find it very easy to block people on Twitter and, you know, use the ones that are helpful and um, uplifting uh, because it can be that way. But I think that this year, like right after the pandemic, mm-hmm. people were a lot more willing to share some of their um, reading lists and their syllabi, a lot more. But I've always found, for example, Black Academic Twitter to do that, right? And they've been doing that for so long that I think that when all the issues of inequality started popping out, you know, all these like new, you know, uh, committees of you know, addressing issues of inequality in academia came out that a lot of um, black scholars and scholars of color were like, you know what, we've done this already. We've put all this stuff out there. If you're interested in it, go find it. But, you know, I was sort of like ahead of the curve in that. I was there before, you know, when all of this was happening. I was already involved and I got all these really cool ideas. Um, but, you know, the visual syllabus, I mean, like, that, that, uh, that idea I would have never thought about it on my own Twitter like mm-hmm. you know, uh, lots of people with samples on there that was pretty amazing people were very helpful mm-hmm. um, everyone was sort of like we're all in this together yep. kind of like you know at least maybe my little bubble on Twitter because we can create this right <laughs> <laughs> people were super helpful and I, and I feel like yeah that was kind of like my big motivation for being on, on there Mm-hmm. Sorry, I've also got to hop off. I have a 
interview in four minutes. Okay. But, um, just to echo everyone, I yes, Twitter, fantastic. And um, as difficult as asynchronous, synchronous, Zoom, multi-LMS juggling is, like I think people are definitely learning how to prioritize care. And if you're not, it shows. And so... <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. I think that's really a um, a big gift from all of this. But um, I really enjoyed this. Um, thank you for having me. Thank you for coming, Jordan. Yeah. Uh, academic Twitter is like what you get out of it, right? I think I've learned more from, from Twitter than I have than I did during my PhD, honestly. <laughs> Well, I had I had mentioned like being on the tenure track before and how you know obviously we're all on nine month contracts, but also um, a lot of our classes are taught by PTIs. And Marilyn was just talking about sharing resources, and that, you know a lot of people who are teaching our students are people who are getting these contracts like one to two weeks before the semester starts in some cases, not knowing if they're going to have their contracts renewed. And we're talking about all this extra work that's involved with with teaching online and specifically preparing in advance. So I think that. It's really important that we move towards opening those shared resources mm-hmm. to, uh, towards being ex- easily accessible for PTI or at part-time instructors. Mm-hmm. So that's what I mean. Adjuncts, and so like something that that um, I really wish that we had more, just like an open source repository where we could uh, put our teaching materials and borrow from each other and make it so much easier for people who are doing those last-minute course props. So if you yeah, well, if you want to talk, undergrads. Oh, sorry, oh, undergrads appreciate it. Like I remember when I was an undergrad as an associate student representative, my big thing, my big idea was that faculty members should provide their syllabus to students. <laughs> you know, it was so funny because I remember like this being a huge deal. Like we should get syllabi as students, but of course from a, from a very different perspective, so we can decide like whether or not it's worth our time. But um, in, in that case, I feel like, again, you know, having these resources available for instructors is so important and speaks to, of course, the neoliberalization of, the, of academia. I was going to say, some of the divisions have these things available, but that also really speaks to tenure-track, tenured faculty who can pay to be in these divisions. Because a lot of our part-time folks, our instructors, our adjuncts, especially people who work in the field, aren't going to pay to be a part of the division to get access to this sort of repository. So I always so, think about that. So I actually, whenever anyone posts anything that's a resource or like someone has a website where they have a bunch of teaching materials or research materials or links, I'm really lazy and I want to find it my like later. And so on my personal website, I have a resources page where literally I link other people's resource pages. <laughs> um, and so you guys are welcome to go to it. It's just my personal last name.com. But it just everything I can possibly find, every time I find it, I try and link it. And people are doing amazing jobs creating these. But I agree, there's no one place where it all yeah. is. You have to go like piecemeal. People ask me, you know, I end up offering up um, these lists to people, and I realize I spend so much time trying to curate things, and then I end up just putting it all on the website, and now I just send them the link, and I'm like, you find it. I'm not doing all this like, extra labor, but at the same time, there's so much out there, you just have to know where to find it, and I think that's half the battle is 
everyone is trying right now to kind of innovate and create their own thing. Uh, not to put fun, but like everyone's creating a podcast, everyone's creating a YouTube channel, right? Everyone's mm-hmm. creating right now, yep. which is cool. But it's also decentralizing a lot of things. Yep. And so like, I wish there were just a resource that I could see everything on. Because I agree, yeah. I think a lot of it is all these different associations and also by discipline. I mean, sociology departments have all these resources. Psych department, psych field has all these resources. Economics, mm-hmm. political science, public policy. I mean, the ABA, right? It's just most of us don't belong to all of them because A, it's expensive and B, your email listserv is crazy. <laughs> uh, but I think that that's part of it is just being able to kind of curate these lists and actually take the time to look at all of them. I mean, it's just it's a lot of work. But I agree. I think that would be really, really nifty, Annie, uh, to, to create those lists. Yeah, so, I mean, that's something that we're trying to do with CrimCon, right? After after we do the conference in November, um, is to start building, like, uh, teaching resources and hosting, like, pedagogy workshops online. I mean, I know people are going to be burned out and are, are already burned out um, with online stuff, but... Uh, I think it's probably here to stay. I think that probably once we go back in person, there are going to—I bet you there's going to be like a significant portion of faculty who are like, "Nah, like I'm, I'm good. Like I'd, I'd rather not go back. <laughs> I, I'm cool with just being online." Um, and you know, like one of the things with CrimCon, because we want it to be free, um, this now allows us to provide other stuff for free too. So, um, opening it up to grad students and. Um, adjuncts and, and people who just ordinarily wouldn't be able to go and and participate in those types of workshops, um, we can provide that for free. Um, so, yeah. I mean, we've already had um, somebody sent us, um, Elias Nader, I believe, sent us um, a rubric he put together to have his students like watch CrimCon sessions and like write about them. So, um, I think we're like I think there's lots of opportunities to do like really revolutionary stuff, and I'm not worried about other people starting podcasts because I know how hard it is, and I know how academics have short attention spans when it comes to stuff like that. And I give it maybe three weeks, and then you'll be moving on to something else. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a it's a big investment of time. Like when you're just looking at like you put all the work into this thing, and then you know a dozen people listen to it. Like, well, why would I want to keep doing that? <laughs> right. So you really have to like it's it's a grind like it's it's that kind of brand management stuff that I don't think a lot of faculty think of and like having to think of themselves as like I want to have the reputation for being like a public scholar how do I do that beyond just saying I'm a public scholar uh, uh, a friend of mine told me the other day that I should write a public criminology book and I was like I don't first idea how I would write a public criminology book. What are you talking about? Like, nobody wants to read a chapter on, like, this is how I made a podcast. <laughs> this is I got a wild hair to start a conference. <laughs> like, I'm just kind of making it up as I go. I did I did find somebody. There, There is a book called Public Criminology. I think, I think it has a question mark at the end. Public Criminology? That I <laughs> I ordered. Um, shout out to whoever to the authors of that. Uh, I do not intend to disparage your your work. I'm sure it was the, the publisher who wanted to put the question mark on the end. Uh, so, like, I maybe there's something there, but I think that 
just trying to create scholarship that's free and open to people, um, especially now, is is very very important. When everything is paywalled, and we are, I mean, we're in a gatekeeping business. Uh, <laughs> it's just not. I I think you know something that Kevin Gannon wrote in in Radical Hope, that a teaching book that he published uh, earlier this year about how some of the neo-Nazis marching in Charlottesville were had, like, college degrees. Uh, like, really rattled me. <laughs> like, what are we doing to replicate the status quo? And, and why aren't we doing better as educators to kind of... You know, we talk about education as this empowering, liberating experience. And really, I mean, at least my experience has been, like, looking at graduating class after graduating class and thinking, like, you are way too cynical at 22 years old. <laughs> I'm really worried about what, what I've done to you over the last four years or what my, my colleagues have, have done to you intellectually over the last four years. This isn't good. <laughs> we, I want you ready to go out there and like change the world, not be like, well, I'm going to be, I'm going into X career, but I don't think I'm going to make a difference. Like, that's not, that's just the status quo. That's all that's happened. That reminds me of, um, so in the in the fall, I, I taught a class on critical perspectives and globalization, and you know I sort of tailored it to talk about some of the things that I think are important, um, like Africa and the Caribbean, and um, but also we talked about resistance to globalization in the class, and we talked about what was happening in Hong Kong, and um, I remember. Like so, so I so I asked a question about violence in in, in, in um, sort of like anti-systemic movements, and I was shocked. All the students were saying, you know, violence is not good. It's never okay. Um, that um, you know, it's about private property and the destruction of private property, and that's not okay. And so we we sort of teased it out a little bit, and but you know, it really struck me that. These young people, you know, were sitting in the class talking about we can't, uh, no, violence is never okay. That, mm-hmm. you know, that, uh, uh, you know, just completely disavowing it. And I remember maybe two days later when we were having a, a mixer, and there was a young woman who had been in Hong Kong, and she said, it should not be illegal to destroy shit, especially public property. And, and I went back to the class and I said, so, let's talk about this. In, in what context and when uh, do we think that, you know, violence is important? Because can we actually change a system without violence? And me asking them that question for them was really shocking. Uh, because, again, you know, as a professor, you're, you know... <laughs> You also have this sort of like civic responsibility to teach the students that you know they have to be good citizens. I think that a lot of people don't think of it that way too. But I do. I do think of teaching as something to do when we're teaching kids it's about citizenship, part of citizenship, right? And so the students were really sort of floored by that question and thought that girl must be crazy. And they said, "No, let, let's really actually unpack it." Mm-hmm. Um, and it's so so difficult for students because we don't realize that so many of our students are do actually think that way. Yeah, that we should never tolerate violence. The violence is never okay. Uh, and so they come out 
you know, and you, and that's why you kind of also get these people on the streets, you know, like these Nazis, right? Because uh, sometimes it, our students don't think critically. Mm-hmm. We tell them we like to hear a voice. We tell them what we want them to hear, yep. and then that's it. We send them off, yep. right? And get an in our class, and that's that, right? Um, uh, but it's it's really important as you know faculty members that when we're teaching that we are cognizant. Of, of those those issues, right? What are we teaching our students ultimately? You know, there's a there's a, a material that we want them to understand or learn, but what else are we doing? What else are we doing? You know, I think um, part of the thing that I really enjoy about teaching is that, aside from like sometimes bursting their bubble about like the CSI effect, um, it is being able to convey kind of the law in the books versus law in action or the, you know, what's actually happening in the real world. Um, and I really enjoy, um, I don't know if you guys have read Lipsky's uh, Street Level Bureaucrats or Bureaucracy, that theory of how criminal justice organizations, but just really just folks in general um, who are on the business end, right? The, D, the person at the DMV, right? Um, kind of people that are providing a service, police officers, judges, whomever, the people that we as citizens come into contact with, not just defendants. Um, or victims or witnesses. But I think that there's an interesting kind of aspect to teaching students kind of this background contextualization aspect of how people actually function, right? The human element. Because a lot of people read the law and they're like, well, this is how it is. Well, unfortunately, that's not really how it works just because the law says that doesn't necessarily mean it. I think an opportunity for us to be able to kind of convey those things. Oh, it's like um, yeah, we Shelly Shelly's phone died, and then there were three. So um, <laughs> I've taken up a, an hour and a half of your time today. Um, so rather than have people drop off one by one <laughs> any further, I will instead thank you so much for your time and your insight. Um, this was uh, certainly very valuable for me, um, and I hope it was for you as well. Thanks for having us, Emily. Thanks for organizing these. Um, I'm really enjoying all of your series. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, and you need to come on for a one-on-one conversation. You and Katie both need to come on. Yes, I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> I love talking research and scholarship, so I'm game. All right. Sounds good. People are not sociology, like, not, like, um, my brand of sociology. Because I'm all for, like, I'm really huge and into interdisciplinary work and transdisciplinary work and I love to see the connections between the, the different subfields. We are so protective mm-hmm. of, our, of our little niche area. Yeah. Like, sometimes we don't see connections that should be very obvious mm-hmm. um, and probably is obvious for outsiders and not to us. But thank you so much. Sorry, Katie. You were saying something. Oh, no. No, no. Okay. All right. I'll let you all go. Have a have a great day, everybody. Bye. 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 Hey, Andy Wilzak again. So, I uh, hope you enjoyed this week's show as much as we enjoyed putting it together. If you did, we would really appreciate it if you left us positive reviews, five-star ratings on iTunes and all of the other podcast places that you can do this stuff. And more importantly, this show thrives on word of mouth. So we are doing this completely through social media. 
all of the guests that we've had are people that I found on Twitter. <laughs> so if you are untenured and you are in any kind of academic discipline or you have an advanced degree and are working out in the field and you want an opportunity to come on the show and hype your stuff, please reach out. You can follow us on Twitter at Untenured Tracks or me at Hey Dr. Will. That's H-E-Y-D-R-W-I-L. Please send me a message on one or both accounts and we will book you on the show. It doesn't matter what your discipline is. I know that a lot of our previous interviews have been sociology and criminology based because that's my background, but I am open to anybody. So again, please rate and review the show. Tell your friends, tell your people about this and I'll see you next week. Bye.